I am very pleased to be with you guys this morning uh, and excited as we, as we start this series in Ephesians. Um, so for the next 16 weeks, uh, we're going to walk through this letter. And um, in this letter, Paul writes, um, it reads more like a sermon than a letter. Um, it says that it's written to the Ephesians, but it's likely more, more like a circular letter that was meant to be read um, uh, through several churches in the area. But but in this letter, Paul lays out so wonderfully, so much deep theology in the first three chapters. In the last three chapters, he, he lays out how as Christians we are meant to live and respond to all that theology. He just shows us everything that God has done for us. And now as Christians, because of everything God has done for us, this is how we need to live. And he begins this letter, and why I'm so excited about about starting this with you guys is, is in chapter one, he lays out the foundation for everything that follows, right? If we can't do chapter five, husbands, you cannot love your wives as Christ loves this church if you do not have a firm grip and an understanding of chapter one. And the thing that Paul is going to address and he's gonna lay out in chapter one is identity, He's going to tell us who we are. As Christians, he's going to let you know this is who you are in Christ. And once we grab a hold of who we are, everything else follows. Not that everything else just becomes simple and easy, but it comes clearer as we begin to walk through this world. So Paul, as he begins to lay this out, tell us who we are. Chapter 2 begins with who we were. Chapter 1 begins with who we are. But I think as Christians, sometimes we can struggle with this, this issue of identity. We could say we're in Christ, right? We're just saying, I'm a child of God, right? But I think the church does a lot of assuming that people really understand what that means to be a child of God, right? Whenever we hear testimonies, um, I think people can, can, can very easily say who they were. You know, if, you come to, if you've been to Regen and you hear some of the testimonies of people, it's very easy for people to articulate who they were and what they've done and then articulate what Christ has done for them. But the second part of that, being able to really clearly say who it is that they are now is a little bit difficult. Right. To help illustrate this, who's, who's, who's read at some point in their life uh, The Ugly Duckling? If you're under 25, maybe not. But the ugly duckling, you know, there's this, this uh, in a nutshell here, there's a swan egg, it rolls down a hill, it ends up in the nest of a duck, right? It hatches, so the swan thinks that it's a duck, right? So it doesn't look like a duck, but it's the ugly duckling, right? So it goes through the early part of its life thinking that it's a duck, but it's just not fitting in to where it's at. But then one day as it gets older, all of a sudden it turns into a swan, right? And it realizes the beauty of what it really is, and then it embraces that beauty, and the story ends with the swan the ugly duckling now being a beautiful swan and going on about that. But to help us understand a little bit more, let's consider a duck that thinks it's something else, right? Who's ever heard of imprinting, right? Ducks, you know, whenever they hatch, you know, the first thing that they see, they imprint on that, right? They identify with that and their identity begins to shape based on what they see. So let's say a duck hatches under the watchful eye of a motherly dog, okay? So this duck hatches, sees this dog, oh, mommy, and then it goes about thinking this dog is his mom, right? So then it grows up under the watchful eye of this, this dog, right? It, it goes to the dog for protection, you know, lays with the dog at night, 
You know, whenever a hot summer day, it hides, it gets up underneath the porch with the dog. And then when a car comes down the driveway, as the dog runs out, starts barking at this car, here comes the duck, viciously quacking and pecking at tires. Now, if we were to look at that, that would be a bit confusing, would it not? Like that duck is confused because it's not supposed to be doing that, right? But I think for Christians, sometimes that's kind of where we can fall, right? We're born into this world. I'm not saying that, that we imprint on the first thing we see whenever we're born, praise the Lord. But we are nonetheless born into a sinful, broken, fallen world. We're born into it. We grow up in it. In that world that we live in, it begins to shape and mold our lives. The way we act, the way we think, the way we speak, the culture around us shapes who we are. And then one day, right, as Christians, we encountered Christ, right? We came to salvation. We received our salvation. And according to scripture, the old is gone and the new has come, right? So we know what we came out of, but the new has come and we don't know sometimes. Sometimes there's this tension of, I really don't know what this means. And I think the church, this word the church, I think has done a poor job in some areas, really making it clear what that means when someone comes to salvation, that the old is gone. What exactly is the new? Because we still live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. We're still affected by it. And if we don't have a firm grasp on who we are in Christ, at some point, we're going to begin to, we're prone to begin to think like or act like who we think we are. And then all of a sudden, a car comes down the driveway and we come running out, of a, out from underneath the porch, quacking viciously and pecking at tires. When in reality, we should be in a lake paddling along and flying south for the winter. But sometimes in our confusion, we fly everywhere else except the place that we need to be going because we don't even know where that is because we're struggling with who we really are supposed to be. Okay, so Paul lays this out. Ephesians 1, he's, he helps us see who we really are in Christ. And when we grab a hold of that, as we walk through this world, it's gonna help us to see ourselves more clearly. And the more clearly we see ourselves in Christ, the easier it's gonna be to live more consistently like him. So Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So in verse one, there's two things that I want you to underline right now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the what? Will of God, underline that. And then to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in who? Christ Jesus, underline that. These two themes are gonna run right through the middle of everything we're gonna talk about this morning. Because Paul, he begins here, he recognizes, he, he says, an apostle. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but not by me, not by anything that I've done. I did not appoint myself. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then who's he writing to? To the saints that are in Ephesus, those that are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's their faithfulness in Christ Jesus that makes them saints. You know, the word for saint is to be set apart. In this context, it's to be set apart for God. So those saints are set apart for God because of their faithfulness in Christ. And it's not just in Christ as just the object of their faithfulness. That's not what's meant here. The depth of this is that Christians not only have faith in him, their life is in him, right? As the root in the soil, the branch of the vine, the fish of the sea, the bird of the air. So the place of the Christian's life is in 
Christ. Everything falls from this. Physically, our life is in this world, but spiritually, we are lifted high above the world to be in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says that if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden, hidden with Christ in God. So there's the implication that wherever Christians may be, whatever difficult environment, circumstance, threatened by materialism or the pressures of non-Christian life, we are in Christ. This is not mysticism. It's not a mystical thing to be in Christ, but it's intended to express the very practical truth that the Christian's life is in Christ. Every, we can't stress it enough. In Christ. That word or the expression of it is used 11 times in the next 14 verses that we're about to read. And by the will of God or that expression or the equivalent of it is used six times in the next 14 verses. So to the saints that are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ by the will of God, is who he's writing to. Us today, we are saints here. Our faithfulness in Christ, and that is by the will of God. This description of a Christian's life is implied in the expression of being baptized into Christ, Romans 6, 3. And his baptism is the outward sign of their inward expression or the entrance into such a life and involves the truth that Christians' corporate existence is in the body of Christ, and that is his church. So that's a message in itself right there. Chew on that in one verse. And then verse two, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for this text. I thank you for, for Paul and using him in the mighty, mighty way in which you did, Lord, to, to pin such wonderful truth, Lord, to us, Lord, to encourage us, to help equip us, Lord, for the practical things and the application of it that follow, Lord. And I just pray for us this morning as we walk through your word in these verses, Lord, that, that you would give us clarity to see and understand, Lord, who you say we are, that I am who you say I am, because you say it. Lord, and I pray that you just be with us in this time this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. So verse Verses three through 14 in the Greek is one long sentence. Okay? I imagine Paul, as he's, as he's writing this, he's likely imprisoned in Rome in chains and he's pinning this letter or sermon, if you will. And he's writing this and I can just imagine him as he's going and it's one long sentence. There's three through 14 is one long sentence and he just keeps going and going and going. So we're gonna read this and then we're gonna back up and, and we're gonna work through it. So verse three Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that is a weighty, weighty text. And if we look at it, you know, from a Greek perspective of being one long sentence packed full of just truth and theology, one thing I want to highlight right here as we, as we begin, before we start to dig into it, is look at how it begins and how it ends. He begins this sentence with, blessed be, the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he ends the sentence with, to the praise of his glory. We can take that as bookends to the library of theology in between them. But he begins with blessing and he ends with praise. Everything in between falls within that realm that by his will, we are in Christ. We are blessed because of him and it is to the praise of his glory. And who we are falls in there. So verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every, what blessing? Spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places, right? Whenever you ask somebody sometimes, hey, man, how are you doing? Well, I'm blessed. Me, my mind automatically goes to some type of material blessing. We live here and now. We think here and now because we experience here and now, right? We think blessing is here and there's nothing wrong with material blessings. And I'm not saying that, that God does not bless us here, but sometimes we need to be careful with how we think we are blessed here. Because sometimes what we believe to be a blessing today can sometime later become a curse. And that happens when we don't understand who our, what our identity is. But here he says, every we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What he's talking about here are not material things. They're spiritual things and they are not here. They are in the heavenly places. I don't know exactly what the heavenly places are. I just know that those things are not here. But that's where these blessings come from. And we experience them here, but that's where they come from. That's where they're held. That's where the power of them come from. They're spiritual blessings. And again, it's not mysticism. If we take God's word at what it says, it's, it's spiritual. As, as our physical bodies are here, our spiritual self is in Christ above. Remember Colossians 3. So verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he blessed us in the beloved. So he chose us. We are chosen. Now that word, this verse, and the word predestined kind of freak people out sometimes. Because it poses an issue that brings about a lot of tension, right? There's one school of thought, and we're not going to spend, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time walking through this, but because the text lends itself to it, I think it's important to at least discuss it a little bit. If you've ever been to starting point class, we go through in depth the essential beliefs of our faith. And then we touch on a few non-essential beliefs. 
And we tell people all the time, we are not going to meet over coffee or have lunch and debate over predestination, chosen choice, or free will. But this text alludes to that. It says that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Clearly, if you were chosen before the foundation of the world, if you were predestined to be adopted, there's the issue of God's sovereignty versus our free will to choose. Now, for over a thousand years, there's been people, scholars, very smart people. I'm an uneducated, common man. There are people much smarter than I am that get together in rooms and probably seminary students or seminary libraries, and they debate this issue. And they will pit Scripture against Scripture to try and prove their point on this issue. It's, you're chosen? No, I have free will. And that does not honor the Lord. It doesn't please the heart of God to have his people arguing over and using his word to support their own opinions. But nonetheless, I will say this. We don't have time for me to list a bunch of scripture, but there is a plethora of scripture that speaks to the sovereignty of God. And there's the same amount of scripture that speaks to the free will of man. Again, we don't have time to run through all of them. But if the inerrancy of God's word supports his sovereignty, most certainly, but also the inerrancy of God's word supports free will in man, can we toss one out and keep another? No. Many people would argue that, but we're not going to argue that this morning. It is my belief that if the inerrancy of God's word supports both sides of this issue, then both sides must be true. And how is that? I don't know. I know we just got to that point and I just didn't, I created all this tension for you and I didn't settle it. But that's, that's where we're at in this. Is sometimes, sometimes if we're not careful when it comes to God's word, and I'm gonna stick on this for just a minute. If we're not careful when it comes to God word, God's word, we can be exceedingly arrogant to think we have a full understanding of it and we'll use it to impose our will, but we'll say that we're chosen. But on the other side of it, we can, if we're not careful, and maybe more dangerously, be grossly misunderstanding what God's word says. But if God's word speaks to both and we hold both to be true, we can rest in the fact ultimately that we just do not understand. There are things that we are not meant to know and fully understand about God's word. Max Anders says this, um, He says, it follows then that men cannot and should not expect to understand the Bible exhaustively. If they could, the Bible would not be divine, but would be limited to human intelligence. Two on that. So I'm gonna hold that both of these things are true. So instead of getting hung up on either side of this issue, we should take at face value, at the very least, face value what this text says and the rest of Scripture, rest of God's inerrant Scripture, and right here, God's Scripture is saying to us that you were chosen. If you were in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Way back here, way back here, you were chosen. If I think about that, if I try and wrap my head around that, Way back here, before anything came to be, before the vastness of the universe was created, he chose me to be adopted into his family. Praise God, thank you. Whether I had a choice in it or not, God, thank you for choosing me and not leaving me in my sin. Because what does chapter say? Chapter two say about us? We'll get there in some weeks. But chapter two says that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Verse three says that by nature, you were children of wrath. So what did God choose me on? Right? I can't puff myself up. By nature, I'm a child of wrath, but for some reason God chose me. So how does he choose us? Is he, is he, walking, is he walking around, you know, like, like we pick people for a pickup game of basketball? I want Joe because he's tall. He's going to get me rebounds. I want Ricky because he's got ball handling skills. And I want Justin because he can pop them threes. Is that how God's choosing his team? Is that how he's picking us? I want this guy because he's going to grow up. He's going to be a businessman. He's going to make me lots of money that I can use for my will and purpose over the world. No, of course not, because we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're by nature children of wrath. Why did he choose us then? What did he choose us for? If you look at verse four, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Did he choose us because we are holy and blameless? No, that we should be holy and blameless. But why did he do that? Why would he choose us, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sin? Why would he choose us way back then to make us holy and blameless? For what purpose? Look at the end of verse four. In love. Go to the simplest verse that surprisingly speaks to free will. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's because God loved us. It's because God loves you. He chose you before the foundation of the world to adopt you. You were predestined to be adopted as a son, as a daughter, through who? Jesus Christ. And that word adopted, the idea of that, uh, William Barclay says this, of the idea of the Roman concept of adoption. When the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they never had existed. And that is not unlike adoption today. There are many families within this church that have adopted children. You yourself may be here and may have been, ad- been adopted. You have a different understanding of what this means because you've experienced what that felt like. But I was talking with Brian Tate because they adopted three children in addition to the three they already had. But he was telling me recently that when they, they, they recently got their birth certificates right, for their new, their new adopted children, got new birth certificates. And on those new birth certificates, it says, birth mother, Amy White. Birth father, Brian Tate. It's as if the, the, the old, what those children were before in the eyes of the state is gone. They got new birth certificates. They are new. They're accepted full rights to the Tate family. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, uh, a few years ago, another family in, in our body adopted some children. And, and I remember we got to go to the courthouse over in Canton and sit with them whenever they finalized the adoption and just support them in that. And I remember that morning pretty vividly. And I don't know why, that was the first time I ever had the opportunity to, to, to watch this. And um, in that morning, just case after case, that morning was coming in as we're sitting waiting. And you could just see just the energy and atmosphere of that courtroom was completely negative. 
you know, the judge was, was wore out. She was whipped, and it was in the morning. She had a full day of this, but she was, she was tired already. She was mad already. She was bitter already at every bit of the sinful things that she had to judge on. The ignorance and, lack of a better word, stupidity of mankind laid out before her, and she continually has to judge on these things. But then all of a sudden, this couple comes up with these three young children having accepted them fully within their family. And you could see the entire attitude of that courtroom change. 100% difference. Even the people sitting over here waiting to be judged on something stupid had a smile on their face. The judge, just her countenance was lifted. You could see the joy coming from her that she gets to sign off on this. She gets to judge on this and allow this couple to adopt into their family, these three young children. And it was a wonderful privilege to be able to witness that because that was the first time I really grabbed hold of this idea of being adopted. It is a perfect picture of the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is that we are adopted as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus in him. And he chose us in him for that. Praise God, however it came to be. Jesus did say in, in John 6, 44, he said, he said, no one comes to me unless the father first draws him. Whether I had a choice on the back end of that or not is irrelevant. Nonetheless, God initiated it with me. He chose me, he chose you. Praise God for that. That is a spiritual blessing. In God, spiritual blessings in the father here is we have been chosen and we have been adopted. Verse seven Continuing on, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And he lavished, the word, the word for lavish there, it, it means that it's more than enough. It's to abound, it's to overflow according to the riches of his grace, not our merit, not anything we've done, but of course the riches of his grace. And we understand that word riches, do we not? I mean, in the movie, The Hobbit, uh, you know, the dwarves of Erebor, they go to Lake Town. They're about to head to the mountain, right? And this mountain has, is full of gold. In this town, they're not going to let them go. But what did they say? If you let us go, you're going to share in the riches of the mountain. Not to go all nerdy, but that is a very good example. <laughs> I heard some of you snickering, but I like The Hobbit. <laughs> but nonetheless... The people of Lake Town understood riches. We're going to share in the riches of that mountain. Yes, you can go. But here it says, the riches of his grace, which he lavished, overflowing, overflowing with grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery, again, of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, all things, unite all things to put an end to any separation between anything that between creator and his creation would be united, united for the fullness of time he planned this. He chose us before time, he made time for the fullness of that time he planned for this to redeem you, to give you forgiveness and to make known to you and the, and the redemption there in the Greek is apolotrosis, which means to buy back for the purpose of setting free. That's what he did. 
We're his creation, created in his image because of sin. We're separated from him, but we're still his. So he has to buy back what's his in order to set us free. That is redeemed. We are redeemed. And then we have forgiveness. In the Old Testament, under the law, forgiveness came through atonement. Atonement came through, sacri- came through sacrifice. And in sacrifice, something had to die. Blood had to be shed. But we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, because of Jesus, his dying on the cross, we have that forgiveness. That's the price that he paid. That's the length that he was willing to go in order to atone for us. And then we are enlightened. Verse 9, he, make, he made known to us the mystery of his will. We are passive in that. We do nothing for it. He made it known to us. But think about this for a minute. The mystery of his will. We'll get more on that in chapter 3 on what that mystery actually is. But if we're chosen, adopted into his family, we have the full rights as being part of his family. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, and then he lets us in on his plan. Think about that. The God of the universe sees fit to call you out of darkness, let you into his family to which you do not belong, and then he tells you his plan for the rest of it. To me, that's, I mean, that, that's a wonderful thing to know. God of the universe let us into his plan. This is it. Praise God that he lets us in, that we're enlightened. We're led into part of his plan. And then verse 11, in him again, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And we have an inheritance. So what is this inheritance? I'm not exactly sure. But I know it's there. I know it's spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We don't get an inheritance here. Something has to happen for an inheritance to come, right? But I know what scripture says about heaven, right? It's going to be peace, joy, love, happiness. We're going to have complete understanding. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 10. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. We're going to have all these questions answered. We're going to know which side to fall on the whole chosen free will. And we're probably going to bang our heads. Duh. But we're going to know. But then again, 1 Corinthians 13, and this is what really, this is what stirs my affection and my heart for the Lord is in this inheritance. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. All of these things are wonderful. Adoption, chosen, forgiveness, redeemed. But this inheritance, when we get there, we will be face to face with the one that made it possible. What will we do? I can only imagine. I mean, that song is so fitting and so true. I can only imagine what that is going to be like to stand face to face with my creator and say, thank you for choosing me. And these are your spiritual blessings in the Son. It's redemption, forgiveness, enlightenment, enrichment, and and inheritance. And then verse 13, in him you also, when you heard of the truth, 
heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And our spiritual blessings here in the Spirit is we are sealed. Back then, a seal was, was like a signet ring, and it, had the, it carried the insignia of an official. You know, it, it validated official documents. You know, they would seal it, the ring into wax. If the seal was broken before it got where it was supposed to go, it's been broken. I don't believe what this says, right? It authenticated documents. Right? It validated them. And the same is true for today. For today. Who's ever tried to go to the go wait five hours at the DMV to get up there to the clerk and all of a sudden you don't have a birth certificate that's got the seal on it? What happens to you? Back of the line. Right? But that's I mean, the seal is what carries forth the authority. It's what makes it valid. It's what makes it official. Brian and Amy Tate got new birth certificates for their children stamped with a seal, surely. But it brings authority of the one doing it. Back Sanders again says this, the issue of the seal is power. The seal is only as significant as the one owning the ring. The authority of the one owning the ring is only as important as his power, his ability to impose his will. Who is it that sealed you? With the Holy Spirit. Remember, it is by the will of God that all this have his purpose, the purpose of his will over and over and over in this text. And it is him, his will, the power behind it that seals you in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit is your guarantee. It's your deposit. He is the down payment on your inheritance. Second Corinthians uh, 5 one and two, and then verse five says this on, on guarantee, says this uses the same word. For we know that if the heavenly, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Verse five, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Spiritual blessings of the Spirit is a seal and a guarantee of what is to come. When it comes to identity, this is who we are. This is who Paul says we are. This is who God says we are. And it's by his will, we are that. And we are that not because of us, we are that because of Christ. When we're in this world and we just get beat down and we're broken from time to time, we're overcome with worry and anxiety. We try and fix things that tend to fall apart and just failure seems to happen after failure after failure. And then we begin to act like who we think we are because of those failures. We lose sight of who God says we are and we lose all power and authority in our lives. And we start acting like that. And all of a sudden, a car comes down the driveway and we come running out, quacking and pecking at tires instead of peaceably sitting on a lake bobbing for June bugs without a worry in the world. But that's the difference. God calls us to peace because he is in it. He is sufficient over all things. He is everything that we need to walk through this world 
And again, we, cannot, we, we can't put on the armor of God in chapter six of this and stand against the fiery darts of the enemy if we don't understand who we are. If we think we're doing this, we're not gonna stand in the day of trial. We're gonna fall and we're gonna fall hard. But Paul doesn't leave us to wonder here, but instead he tells us that our identity lies in Christ and because of him, we are immensely blessed to the praise of his glory. Church, we are chosen, we are adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're enlightened, we're enriched in an inheritance, we are sealed, and that inheritance is guaranteed. And we should rest in that. When times are tough, when times are wonderful, I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. So when someone asks you, hey, what, is that, what does it mean to be a Christian? Ephesians 1, this is, this is what it looks like. And you know what? You can be too. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word as always, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for, Lord, the, the privilege to be here and share your word with your church, Lord. And it is, as Paul says, Lord, that it is by your will that I'm here. I most certainly could be many other places if left on my own, but you called me out of that and you placed me here, Lord. And I praise you and I thank you for it. I thank you for the blessings, Lord, that you bestow on us. Now, I thank you for the blessings that you have in store of us to come that far outweigh, outweigh anything we have here that there is an eternal weight of glory awaiting us in our inheritance, Lord. And though we don't know exactly what those things may be, we can only imagine, Lord. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you keep us fresh. Keep our eyes fresh and our hearts fresh and our ears fresh, Lord, to hear from you, Lord. That in times of trial, Lord, when just the silliest things happen and we tend to act in the flesh and act like who someone else says we are, Lord, that we rest in the fact that that's not who we are. That we are adopted as sons and daughters through your son into your family, Lord, by your grace that abounds. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, and I just pray that you just help us to walk in that, Lord, as we continue to work through your word in the coming weeks, Lord. We love you and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.